Good evening. How are you tonight? I hope you are well. Would you like to play a game? Good. It's called Exquisite Corpse, and despite its name, it is all about creation. Much like Dr. Frankenstein created a hole from many pieces, something living from something dead, we will cobble together our own puzzle and breathe life into it. We're going to create something, you and I, and while it may not walk around when we're finished, it will live in other ways, the way all art lives. Which method do you prefer? Drawing? Painting? Sculpture? Perhaps you are more of a writer like me. The medium doesn't matter. The rules are always the same. I will begin. First, I write a sentence, and then you write one, and so on until we have a story. Or I will draw a head, and then you will draw a torso until we have a body we have decided to be whole. There are no limits to this game. You add what you feel, what you see in your mind's eye. The object is not to make sense, it is to make art, and art does not consider the feelings of its medium. Just ask Elizabeth Short. You remember her, don't you? Beautiful, tragic, the sum of several parts, quite literally an exquisite corpse. If you think that comparison is a mistake, I'm extremely disappointed in you. And so too would be her killer. Perhaps that would be a more suitable way to pass the evening then. All right, but we'll get back to that game, you and I, and I'm sure we will create something truly exquisite. But for now, I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. We would be dead. pick sculpting (laughs) (laughs) sculpting yeah okay i would do sculpting (laughs) that is my medium choice (laughs) the next time we could be in the same location we will make an exquisite corpse with sculpting clay okay great (laughs) (laughs) welcome to part two of the black dahlia if any of you haven't listened to the first installment of this case on Elizabeth Short, who she was and where she came from, consider going back to episode 10 and giving it a listen. You can pause this one right here and then come back to it. Yep. Stop what you're doing and go back to episode one. Go back right now. Oh, episode 10, part one. We'll wait. Okay. Are you done? Okay, good. Let's move on. Welcome back. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back, everybody. Now that you've refreshed Elizabeth Short. So we had a really fun week over on Campfire Stories. Leslie made us all stop sleeping for good. (laughs) I haven't slept since. (laughs) I think a lot of us haven't. Yeah, especially after my dad told me that he also sees shadow people. I, that little like update is so nuts to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, um, so uh, for all of you, my parents don't really, they listen a little bit to the podcast and sometimes they they actually haven't checked into our campfire stories yet. So 
I usually talk to them afterwards and tell them what my story's about. My mom's not really into this kind of thing, so, but my dad is, he's supportive. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so I told them about what story I chose and um, told them about, you know, my personal story for it in case they didn't remember (laughs) what I had done. (laughs) They didn't remember you invoking the Nana? Yeah. (laughs) And my mom was like, why didn't you tell me you saw somebody like standing in your room? Mm -mm. Like, why wouldn't you say that to me? And my dad was just like, oh, yeah. And I see shadow people all the time. And my mom was like, yes, he does. Oh, my God. That blows my mind. Yeah. And you never knew that before that moment. I never knew that, no. Oh, that's crazy to me. Yeah. Wow. Really good update. Yeah. Love that. (laughs) Uh, We also had a couple really nice reviews this week. I don't know if you Mm -hmm. saw them or not, but um, a big thank you goes over to our friend Lisa, who left us a really nice review over on Podbean. Uh, Lisa also apparently shares a birthday with Elizabeth Short, but we are hoping that their similarities just end there. Yes. So For sure. They're both very pretty. Yeah. And then we're going to stop it right there. Uh, Thank you also to our friend Andrew, who left us a great recommendation over on Facebook. Thank you so much. We both really appreciate it uh, when you guys take the time out of your day for us, really. It's super nice. Thank you. And everyone else, if you haven't, please hop over to your podcast provider and leave us a five-star review, especially if it's Apple Podcasts, because it helps a lot over there. Okay. I think that's all of our introductory business. Do you have anything? Nope. Going forward? No? Okay. No. Then let's let's get right into the story. When we left off last week, we had just gotten to the discovery of Elizabeth Short's bisected body. Update. I have gotten a concrete pronunciation of hemicorporectomy. Ooh, very yeah, nice. Yeah, better. It's fluid. I said it like 12 mm-hmm. times before. Um, and I feel much less like an asshole now, so <laughs> <laughs> I got that going for me, which is nice. Good. <laughs> So I'm going to recap Elizabeth's injuries and cause of death just because it bears revisiting with more detail before moving forward. Authorities didn't have much to go on when they found Elizabeth Short's body. She had clearly been killed somewhere else and purposefully positioned at the location where she was found. It was an unusual position, one that wouldn't have been the result of like dumping her body and running. She was clearly posed in the position she was in. Everything about this murder seems extremely deliberate. I think there's no arguing that. Um, the police were able to find a couple drops of blood in her surrounding area, um, like a little bit on the curb and some cement sacks nearby, which contained some still like liquid red blood, which is newer than like, you know, old gross blood. Mm -hmm. It's all gross, but I guess that one's slightly less. (laughs) And there was a tire mark on the curb by where they would have dropped her off. So from what they could gather, Elizabeth had been killed and mutilated and then thoroughly washed. Some sources say she was washed with gasoline, which will take like any and all things off. It just, it's actually a very good cleaner. Don't clean your house with gasoline. It's, it's also very caustic and, and no good, but, but it does clean things well. <laughs> um, her face had no makeup on it. Her body was clean and stark white, not bloody at all. Her body was completely naked and authorities would later find one of her shoes and handbag in a trash can a mile away from the crime scene. It appeared that she had been transported in, already in pieces, did, completely drained of blood, in a car with the cement sacks protecting the vehicle from any kind of leftover blood evidence because you can drain a body, but it's still going to be kind of drippy if you're taking it somewhere. 
The car had pulled right up to the curb, so that's where the tire, like, brushed up against the car. And the murderer had gotten out and carefully placed Elizabeth on her back, legs spread far apart, intestines tucked out of sight, upper torso visibly removed from lower torso and legs, but not in another location, just, like, a little space in between the two, because the visual is all part of this. Whatever it was. Her arms were raised over her head, bent at the elbows, and her wrists bore ligature marks, which meant she had been tied up, which I think we all could have called that one. Like, there's no way this happened, and she was just roaming around free. Um, Elizabeth was missing <laughs> large swaths of skin on her breasts and thighs and bore a crosshatched system of cuts in her pubic area. Her mouth had been cut from ear to ear, giving her a grotesque permanent smile. Los Angeles Chief Coroner Frederick D. Newbar inspected the body. Newbar declared that she had died of blunt force trauma to the head, blood loss from her facial injuries, and shock. Her bisection was said to have, like, had to be done by a surgeon. In fact, Dr. Newbar had said it had been, quote, a fine piece of surgery, unquote, done with finesse by a skilled surgeon. The hemicorporectomy is a medical procedure used in extreme cases to cut a human in half but save their life. It is extremely rare, with only around 50 cases on the books to this day. However, the procedure was routinely taught in United States medical schools in the 1930s. The number of surgeons to have actually performed the surgery, though, would have been extremely small uh, because the risk is enormous. Obviously, you're cutting someone in half. Like, they're most of the time, they don't live through it. Mm-hmm. So surgeons, not exactly real quick to do that one. Um, so remember, anyone without medical knowledge should really not be considered a super valid suspect because of this. Thankfully, coroners could tell that this procedure was performed on Elizabeth after her death. Oh, thank God. I, right? Like, I, I, it still shakes me every time that the, her mouth was done while she was still alive. Oh, yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's what killed her, the blood loss, because you bleed That's from right. your head like crazy. Mm-hmm. And they, like, she was... You know, her head was, like, beaten in, and she was, those big gashes in her mouth bled. Right. So, yeah. But thankfully, she was not cut in half while still alive, which, oh, God, even thinking of that is a nightmare. So, in Well, she probably, she would have lost feeling. She would have, they would have cut through that nerve part. After they severed her spinal cord. Mm -hmm. But if you went in from the front, that wouldn't happen first. I guess not, yeah. I was just trying to think what would actually hurt Usually... The surgery is done in two parts, and the first part is just to, like, cut off your intestinal tract and stuff and, like, your part that goes to your kidneys and where you pee and stuff. They, like, cut cut and, like, redirect all that, Mm -hmm. and then they go in later and they do the amputation. I gotcha. So you're kept put together for a lot of it. So she would have—if she was alive, it would have been—I don't even want to think about it. She wasn't, so So that's good. we don't have to. So no crazy, like, jigsaw killers listen to this and then go do that because now you know you can. (gasps) Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, in this case, the risks, there was no risk factor, which is what I said normally stops surgeons from performing the surgery. So he would have just done the whole thing. Okay. So there are a few things to bear in mind as we press on. There are so many pieces of false information in print about this case. And Leslie, you have encountered them this week too. Like, yeah, it's nuts how many things that you read and then you read something else and you're like, oh, that was, that was all not true. Now I have to go back Mm -hmm. and get rid of that. Or which one was true. (laughs) Yeah. So it's super hard to sort through this and you kind of just have to go with your instinct. And we've talked about it at length. Yeah. 
So we kind of have a feeling of what to believe and what not to believe. But I have put together a list of like useful fake facts so that if you hear them in a theory, you could almost immediately go, oh, it's not that guy. Right. So get out your pens and paper, write mm-hmm. these down, and you can check them off one by one. <laughs> Take some notes. Mm-hmm. We'll play a little game. All right. One, Elizabeth was not, nor had she ever been, pregnant. Chief Coroner Frederick D. Newbar stated this in his autopsy report. There are so, so many places that say she was pregnant, and that's why she got killed and cut in half, because they wanted to get rid of the baby part. But her uterus was intact, and there was nothing in it, and it was reported to be small and have never, like, increased with the pregnancy. So that's not it. Plus, like, every doctor involved in this is an abortionist, so people immediately assume that that's, that's why. Right. But it's not true. Two, there is no evidence of Elizabeth being burned by cigarettes. This is reported in a lot of places. The rumor started in a fictional account of the murder. It was like a book written in the 70s, I think. You can see for yourself in the extensively available postmortem photos that there are no cigarette burns. They're pretty easy to identify. A cigarette burn has that telltale circular shape, and like we all would know it if we saw it. And they're just, they're just not on her body. It, it's not a thing. However, a lot of people like to believe it. I don't know. Do they think like detectives at the time and fancy people smoked cigarettes and so that was involved in it? Yeah, probably. I guess. But it's not (laughs) true. No, it's fake. So write that on your list. Three, there is no evidence that Elizabeth had been raped. And this is a big one because most people... That's because she was too tiny. (laughs) Get out of here. That comes in later. (laughs) Okay. However... Her body had been washed extensively, so if any semen was located on her body, like, externally anywhere, it could have easily been removed. Mm, This crime seems very sexually motivated, but there really isn't any evidence to back it up other than the fact that she was naked. Mm -hmm. So, okay, this is like a graphic thing warning. There are reports that she had a slightly dilated anus. Mm. So there could have been, like, some butt stuff. That went on, but there really isn't enough evidence to tell, and there are other things that could have caused that, so. Okay. But it's there, so I'm telling you. Four, there is no evidence that feces were found in the contents of Elizabeth's stomach. True crime people love to latch on to this one, and it's, it, it kind of dots its way through some of the stories, how, how it could have happened. But I think people like it because they feel like it's particularly gruesome. However, I don't think you really need to add a gross-out factor to this case. It's a woman cut in half and, like, slit up the sides of her mouth. We got enough going on. Let's add poop. Yeah, right? <laughs> Always add poop. Never. Never do that. Never do that. And mostly the injuries that she suffered were methodical and surgical in nature, making and making a mess seems kind of outside of the murderer's character. They took such great effort in keeping her, like, clean and looking a certain way. I, why would you add shit into the mix? I don't know. Right, yeah. People like to talk about it a lot. Anyway, five, there is no evidence that Elizabeth was a prostitute. Could she have been and just kept it a really, really, really good secret? Absolutely, but we have no confirmation. There, She has no arrest record for it. There's no one who reports she did it. You can't trace her back to, like, anything. So really, like, no one can say with authority that she was a prostitute. Does it sell more Pulp Fiction novels to make her a prostitute? 100% yes. Same way it's more interesting if she had cigarette burns or she was pregnant, but these are not true. (laughs) Six, this is your favorite. (laughs) Elizabeth did not have deformed genitalia. This one is wild. (laughs) There are theories that it was impossible for her to have penetrative sex due to a genetic abnormality that made her vagina just too small for penetration. 
This was not the case at all. Coroner reports show that she had a perfectly normal vagina. And isn't that all what we want after death? Yeah. (laughs) She lived a good life. Her vagina was normal. (laughs) I think this was something, a rumor that she started to keep guys away from her. Like, I just can't. I'm just too small. It's not possible. You can't. It's not me. It's not you. It's like a medical Yeah, You're just too big for me. Oh... Like, guys, you can use that one. Don't use the weird thing about cutting someone in half, but you can use that one if you want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm, My tiny vagina. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously. (laughs) But that wasn't true. Okay. She died as she lived with a normal vagina. Seven. (laughs) To the best of all detectives' knowledge, Elizabeth was not a secret lesbian. Maybe she liked women good for her but it wasn't the sensational thing that lots of books like to make it out to be and by all accounts she had a lot of very valid and meaningful relationships with men could she have liked both absolutely live your life but i'm just saying there's no confirmation that she like had this secret dramatic life as a lesbian and that's why she had problems with men and stuff that's all pulp fiction stuff uh, apparently, it's like very sexy to make her a lesbian, though. So people like that yeah, one. Always is. How old was she again when she died? 22. 22. So mm-hmm. I was getting the sense, even just from the suspects that I had to research, that she did have, she knew a lot of girlfriends, like had a lot of girlfriends in the area, whether she was mm-hmm. very close to them or just knew, knew of them. But being that young... I think she had, like, a lot of acquaintances. That's what... Yeah, it just seemed like a lot of acquaintances, and so, and a few were a little closer. But mm-hmm. it just... I mean, at 22, you know, she had been there for a couple years. Like, you're just... I mean, I I probably seemed like a lesbian in college. <laughs> I don't... You know? <laughs> it's all the softball. <laughs> yeah, it's all the softball, for sure. <laughs> That's a story for another day. Uh, no. <laughs> That's a fair point, though, and it does seem that she was, she didn't seem to have a lot of close friends, Mm -hmm. because there are not a lot of women that came forward and were like, I knew her super duper well, and I know that she would have done X, Y, Z, but she had a lot of, like, just friends and acquaintances. Yeah, and I could see the the sense that I was getting, if if they were just acquaintances as well, Mm -hmm. and she was, you know, say she was going to parties or going out and meeting these people in a new town, Mm -hmm. any... Some of those girls could have just thought she was a little weird because she was trying to be friendly to make some friends. And yeah. that comes off. Like, you know, even when you're trying to just talk to a guy to be friends with, they think that you're flirting with them. So, Or if a lot of men wanted her and she turned them down, they could have easily been like, well, she's a lesbian. Yeah, because she's always around women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she didn't want me, so she must be gay. Yeah, exactly. That could Assholes. be a thing. Um, and lastly, number eight, there is no way to tell if this was a police cover-up. A lot of theories feature a cover-up or willful ignorance on the part of the police. Could it have played a part? Definitely. There definitely was probably some shady police work going on here. But do we know unequivocally that that happened? No, because you're never going to be able to prove that. Right, but it makes an interesting story. It absolutely does, and I think it it came into play in some places. My point in saying this is that, like, if anyone says, like, this is definitely why... Yeah, there's no, you can't prove that because no police is going to tattle on other police. Like that doesn't really happen that much. But I don't know. That one is like an iffy guy. Okay. It's like an an iffy one. Because sometimes when they mention police involvement, I'm like, that's nuts. And other times I'm like, oh, that could be true. Right. Because some some of the 
mentions are very simplistic where you're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, because it would make, like, why wouldn't he just be friends with this person? Mm-hmm. You know, so it there were some cases where I could see it and yeah. maybe they tried to at least help the situation if they didn't think the person was really the killer. But I yeah. think if they really were onto somebody, they would have pursued it. That was Agreed. my feeling. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now everybody knows just about as much as the police knew walking away from that crime scene and beginning to investigate suspects. So try and keep as much of that in your head as you can, and we will proceed. It will be helpful. After the police discovered who Elizabeth was, oh, this is so sad. Sad warning. They had to have a family member come to the morgue to officially identify her. As we mentioned in previous episode, in the previous episode, her father, Cleo Short, wasn't like the world's greatest guy, but he did make some lovely amenities for dollhouses. <laughs> miniature golf courses. JK, they were just miniature <laughs> golf courses. <laughs> When asked, when asked by the police to come identify his daughter's body, Cleo said no. Oh, bastard. He was like, I don't want to do that. No. <sighs> yeah, who, what? Well, I mean, who does? Who would? Yeah, but still, <laughs> come on, you got to do it. I know. Next on their list was Elizabeth's mother and last week's toast recipient, Phoebe May Short. Love Phoebe May. Phoebe was still living in Massachusetts at the time, and the police did not want to run the risk of refusing to ident- her refusing to identify the body as well. So they called Phoebe May and told her that her daughter Elizabeth had won a beauty contest. <gasps> and she should, I know, and she should fly out to Los Angeles for the ceremony. What the fuck? This, this real life happened. When Phoebe arrived, she was told that she had been deceived and was led to the morgue to identify her much-loved daughter's dead, mutilated body. I'm so angry right now. Yeah, this is my least favorite story, and I still cannot believe it happened, but it absolutely did. I know. Sweet little Phoebe May. I'm so angry. Right? Can you imagine, like, doing that to a woman, a grieving mother? Can you imagine if that happened now? Yeah. That would be everywhere. That would be like one of the standout parts of this case. Yeah. If I told a grieving mother, well, no. You would <laughs> if never. I told the mother. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> but can you just Forget imagine the gut punch that was when she was like, oh, I haven't seen my daughter in a long time because she moved away. And she's like, oh, she won a beauty contest. She must be doing so well. And then they're like, mm, no, she's dead and chopped up. Come look at her. And And also, I mean, I don't know how how what the timeline was between them calling the dad and her probably not long it was real short but i get i mean i guess that was the first time the father heard that she died yeah too Mm -hmm. so maybe he just didn't have time to call her if he even would have but holy shit they didn't i don't think they spoke at that point because he was like hey remember me i'm still alive and she was like yeah you're a fucking jerk bye i don't know but if he refused to go identify her body i don't think he was calling up his ex-wife to tell her what had happened. I think he just didn't yeah. want to be part of anything. Wild. Quality parenting right there with that dad. Suspect number one. Mm. <laughs> so after receiving a positive ID and speaking to her mother, police began their long and technically fruitless search for Elizabeth's murderer. This list of suspects is a mile long, so we can't cover them all in detail, but we will endeavor to hit all the main persons of interest there are a great many suspects in this case. The list of seriously investigated suspects began at about 60 and was pared down to 25. They are as follows. I did not look up pronunciations on all of these, so let's go for let's it. Let's have fun and see what happens. Charles Balsiger, 
C. Welsh, Sergeant Chuck, name unknown. Just Chuck. Chucky Chuck. Yeah. John D. Wade, Joe Scalis, James Nemo, Maurice Clement, a Chicago police officer. Just one of them. Hmm. Something to think about. <laughs> Salvador Torres Vera, Dr. George Hodel, Marvin Margulis, Glenn Wolf, Michael Anthony Otero, George Bacos, Francis Campbell, quote, queer woman surgeon, end quote. Hmm. Yeah, they're really cool about this list. Dr. Adam Farrell, Dr. Paul de Gaston, which might be Gaston, but like <laughs> Disney tells Gaston. me to pronounce that Gaston. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. Dr. A.E. Bricks, Dr. M.M. Schwartz, Dr. Arthur McGinnis Fought, Dr. Patrick S. O'Reilly, Mark Hansen, Jacob Fisk's, Fisk, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. <laughs> and then did I mention yours, Leslie, what's his name? Leslie Dillon and Jeff Connors. Leslie Dillon and Jeff Connor. They're the last two. I think that they were lumped in with the other guy. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, this is just some of them. There were like 60 of them, but I just want to give people a taste of what the list was like. Now, these are all theoretic- theoretical and some are more fleshed out than others. Some are just completely grasping at st- straws, like queer woman surgeon. Cool, guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool to say that. They went on the two, like, phony facts thing. They were like, well, some people said she was a lesbian, and this was clearly a doctor, so it was a lesbian doctor. Yeah. (laughs) Good job. Good detective work. A plus. Also, a great many people confessed to the Black Dahlia murder, and this phenomenon is so far beyond me. It happens all the time, too. People confess to murders they did not commit simply for the fame or the infamy. And the sensationalist nature of this crime investigation and copious press coverage brought them all out of the woodwork. How many confessions did you say there were last week? Oh. It was a lot. I think it was, like, well over 100. Yeah, there were so many of them. And a lot of them they were able to tick off immediately. They were like, shut up, you didn't do this. So Yeah. But um, I'm going to sprinkle in some of the most famous suspects. And then Leslie and I will each explore one of the, like, most major and plausible theories. Also, I I absolutely know who did it. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But these are the two really big ones. Um, So I'm going to do the first couple little ones, then we'll get into Leslie's section of the case. Now, usually the investigation into any murder will begin with the last person the victim was seen with or the husband because the husband always did it. (laughs) But there is no husband in this case, just a trail of broken hearts. The last person Elizabeth Elizabeth was seen with was the hilariously named Robert Red Manley. Yes. (laughs) He lives up to that name. I know. So good. Red had actually a very long history of mental illness. It was the reason for his discharge from the U.S. Army. Red was taken in for questioning pretty quickly and was was super quick to give the police all the information he had. He was really, really helpful. After passing two polygraphs, Red was taken off the suspect list, which is actually some bullshit because polygraphs are useless and you can absolutely beat them. But that's besides the point here because I don't think that he did it. Okay. His wife, he did have a wife, as I mentioned, he might have last week, (laughs) which is why he was like, we were in a hotel room, but definitely did not have sex. Right. (laughs) His wife and his friends gave him like an airtight alibi for the days following his interactions with Elizabeth and all of it checked out. He even helped the police identify Elizabeth's shoe and handbag when they were discovered in a trash can a mile and a half from where the body was found a few months after the killing. Um, another one is Joseph A. Dumise. He's one of the people who confessed to the killing, who just called the police and was like, I did it. I swear I did it. They were like, why and when? He was like, I don't know. I just did it. 
<laughs> at the time, he was a soldier stationed at Fort Dix. And the detectives would find out that he was definitely just there those days. Yeah. All his, like, commanding officers and fellow soldiers and stuff were like, no, he was he was here the whole time. There are records of him being here. Right. But he... I feel like he was just suffering from, like, PTSD, maybe. And just kind of, like, broke down for a moment. Or he just wanted to get out of the army. Oh, maybe. Dumais continually insisted he was guilty of this murder for the rest of his life. He went so far as to commit other petty crimes just to prove he was a criminal. So he'd be like, I stole this thing. Clearly I killed her. See how the two were connected? And the police were like, you got to go away, man. Oh, poor guy. Just wanted to play. I know. <laughs> but this is laughable, but his name comes up on every single list. So if you can see now what I mean about people chasing fame, he's a prime example of it. Uh, this is my favorite suspect. George Knowlton. George Knowlton was not at all explored while he was alive. He was not someone the cops thought was a suspect. Little reliable information is available on him, except that he lived in Los Angeles at the time of the murder and died in an automobile accident in 1962. However, in the early 90s, George's daughter, Janice, began claiming that she had witnessed her father killing Elizabeth Short. And she based this on a bunch of recovered memories that surfaced in therapy. Uh, Rough. She went into therapy for depression after she had a hysterectomy. And then the, she had all these recovered memories, which was not as prevalent in the 90s, but it was a thing that happened all the time in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And that led to a lot of the satanic panic stuff and a lot of like incredible claims of people with multiple personalities. I think dissociative identity identity disorder is very real, but there are definitely people who claim to have it and didn't. Right. So just put it that way. Um, but based on these recovered memories, um, Knowlton published a book called Daddy Was the Black Dollar Killer. <laughs> oh, my God. With veteran crime writer Michael Newton in 1995. In the book, Knowlton the daughter, who was a former professional singer and owner of a public relations company, alleged that her father had been having an affair with Elizabeth Short. Elizabeth Short, I can't talk. And that Short was staying in a makeshift bedroom in their garage where she suffered a miscarriage. Ding, ding, ding. Never pregnant. Um, yep. Check her out. George Knowlton allegedly murdered Short in the garage and bisected her in the sink. The sink. You fit a whole ass woman in your garage sink. And had the room to, like, precisely cut her in half. Bye, bye, bye. Then he forced his 10-year-old daughter, Janice, to accompany him when he disposed of the body. According to Knowlton, Short was a sex worker, another check on the list, and a procurer of children for a child trafficking ring. Knowlton claimed that a former member of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department told her that her father was considered a suspect in the case by that agency. But this claim is completely unsupported by police. Like I said, he was not a suspect during the time. She claimed that the same source told her that future LAPD chief and California politician Ed Davis and Los Angeles County District Attorney Buren Fitz were suspects in the murder as well. And this all was published in the Los Angeles Times in 1991, along with a caveat that they did not believe any of it was true. So this... Woman is clearly a total nutbag, but she's a published nutbag and a loudmouth, so I mentioned her. Okay. She ran the full circuit when this came out. Like, she was on talk shows. She had the book published. So the police actually had to look into all her crazy claims. Um, she also claims that she was raped by Walt Disney. Well, there you go. <laughs> Throw her out the door. 
Yeah, she's a real peach. This bears all the hallmarks of Black Dahlia lies, even if you take her craziness out of it. Pregnancy, prostitute, police cover-up, it's the Holy Trinity. Next. So there are a lot of more crazy theories about who killed Elizabeth, but at this point, I'm just going to stop giving them any kind of attention because they're all... That's the peak of craziness. Yeah. That's as crazy as it gets. Mm -hmm. So we've heard that one. And the rest of them are just kind of little ones like, well, this guy was a suspect, but then he probably didn't do it. Right. So... um. At this point, I'm guessing everyone really gets the picture of how it all went down. Um, so then, now I'm going to turn it over to you, Leslie, okay. for our first big major theory. And this theory includes three major suspects, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. And when the time is right, I'll chime in with an additional one. Okay. In this line of thinking. Or anything you need. If you cover him. Okay. Great. So um, my first suspect is Mark Hansen. Mark Hansen uh, owned a Hollywood nightclub. He knew Elizabeth Short because she lived with him on and off for weeks at a time. She shared a room with Ann Toth, who was his, uh, who was Hansen's friend slash girlfriend slash who knows because it just feels like everyone's lying all the time about everything. <laughs> and he owned the Florentine <laughs> Gardens, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just mentioned it last time, so I'm gonna okay, yeah, bring it back around. Yeah, he owned a couple different buildings, so they just keep. So they just keep, like, moving around all the time. So I just mm-hmm. didn't put too many names in there. Yeah, that's, um, makes sense. So on January 25th, uh, Mark Hansen and Ann Toth were questioned by the police at his place. When the police asked about the, his relationship with her, he says that she was a nice girl, very homely. And if it wasn't for her jacked-up teeth, she would have been pretty good-looking. But whatever, because he wasn't interested anyway. <laughs> Those teeth. I told you they said yeah. she had messed up teeth for whatever reason. Yeah. I don't know because she couldn't afford a dentist. I guess so. I think I feel like it was like her bottom teeth or something. It was. It was yeah. just her bottom teeth. Yeah. Um, he let her stay with him because he felt sorry for her, but she was um overstaying her welcome a lot of the time. Oh, sure. I let yeah. this beautiful girl stay with me because <laughs> I feel real bad for her. He yeah. was not that good looking, <laughs> by the way. Um, and then uh they asked if if he was dating her at all, if there was any romantic involvement. He said no, but that she was dating other men, mostly what he called hoodlums, which is like another reason why he didn't really like her staying at the place because he just hated these guys coming around. Full of hoodlums. Yeah, a bunch of hoodlums. Well, okay, so I should mention he's 55 at the time. That's so what I'm saying. Older, he was not yeah. like this hot young dude. He was like no. an old guy. Yeah. Um, and he also, he mentions, uh, like a language teacher. I brought that into here just in case any of the suspects happened to be a language Mm -hmm. teacher, but I don't think there was. Mm -mm. Um, they asked Hanson about these items that were sent to the police station. Um, he mentions, um, well, so I'll go into these items. So the police had received a package that included an address book, a birth certificate, and a letter that was written, you know, like the magazine type of lettering. It looks like the typical serial killer ransom note type thing with all the magazine letters glued into words. Yeah, basically saying like, I'm the killer, like here's all her Mm -hmm. stuff kind of things. Um, The address book had um, Hanson, it was like um, embossed in gold writing with his name on it. Yeah. Um, But it was clearly being used by... Um, Elizabeth, not by Hanson. Right. So um, so that's one reason why he became more of a suspect. Uh, they questioned him about these items. He mentioned that the book was his, but he never used it. 
and that he also remembers that there was a calendar that he had seen that he thought was missing, and he was like, she probably stole that too. So he was obviously implying that Bess stole these items Mm -hmm. before she had moved out of his place and that she might have just had them on her when the killer um, killed her, and so... Well, they do find her purse later, but the purse doesn't have any of that in it. So, like, yeah, maybe somebody just took it. Well, but if they were trying to keep it to send in, you know, yeah, that was my thought. The other thought is, um, you know, they could have been left in the apartment. And that's another that's probably what the police were thinking, that she left them there. Um, She was Elizabeth was clearly like through this research. I'm finding that she didn't really have a stable like home situation. So she was bouncing back and forth a lot. Hanson and I would say like Ann Toth will mention a little bit that she felt um, that Elizabeth was, she felt the closest to them, like a little bit more secure. So that's why she kept coming back to their place. Mm -hmm. And so therefore she could have just left some of her birth certificate, maybe a few other items, knowing that Anne could have kept them safe for her. I don't know. But I also think that she probably took them and just had them on her and the killer kept some of that stuff. Either the killer kept them or the killer left them in that handbag. Somebody else took them and was like, I'm going to be famous. Oh, that too. And sent them in because so many people wanted, wanted recognition in this crime. They wanted to be a part of it because it was such a big deal at a time. If, if a person like that guy that was like, I committed a crime, so I clearly did it, found that, they absolutely would have been like, I can send this to the police and this can be a plot line now. Right. So it could have been anyone who did that really. Okay. Well, so continuing, Anne, his friend slash girlfriend slash Beth's roommate, mm-hmm. said she was super nice, very pretty. Guys were very attracted to her. She went out, but she barely drank, if at all. She did not do drugs or smoke and was a pretty good house guest. And that Hansen had, she says that Hansen's claims are wrong, that he, she feels that he did have a crush on her, at least like yearned for her in a certain sense, um, and that he would act... I buy that. And that he would act jealous sometimes. Um, She told police that Elizabeth had rejected his advances, and she also says, in response to Hansen's remarks, we ought to look at the good in people. Oh. Hansen had asked Beth to find... Sorry, I keep calling her Beth and Elizabeth. My apologies. That's okay. (laughs) If if in your version of the story, people refer to her as Beth, that's fine. We'll just make sure the people are aware of that right now. There's, I didn't write it down. I took them out. She also she went, went by, by like Betty a, couple nicknames. a lot. Yeah, sometimes yeah. she went by Betty. Yeah. So Hanson asked Beth to find a new living arrangement a couple times. And uh, this last time before her murder, it was probably just a few weeks. I feel like it was in November or something. And helped her find a place at the Chancellor building. Uh, so she had moved out. Okay. The Chancellor was definitely a shadier uh, building. It was very inexpensive to rent there. The landlord was known as just kind of a terrible guy, um, and he would, like, overstuff the rooms with people just to make the extra buck. Uh, really wasn't that clean, and he wasn't um, he wasn't a comfortable person to be around. Got it. So uh, Beth just was not feeling that comfortable there, and so she would still go back and visit with Anne a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, one night, Beth visited Anne and Hanson and told them that she didn't really like it there. The people were shady. She just felt unsafe. She was planning to go out of town to visit her sister and asked if she could move back with them for a short time when she returned. She seemed really scared, and Hanson said she felt sorry that he felt sorry for her. Um, 
And I don't know if he said yes or anything to her moving back. Mm -hmm. But um, that night he drove her home and that's when he told the cops that was I never saw her again. So that was, um, I guess, a few days before her murder. Um, But I don't know if that's the last time he talked to her. Well, that could fit in with like the overarching timeline of her because okay like, she she went did she go to San, San Diego San Francisco one of the two yeah i think San Francisco she went on a trip that's where she met up with Robert Manley who mm-hmm. she who gave her a ride home and he dropped her off at the Biltmore and that's yeah. the last, last place she was ever seen by anyone mm-hmm. so and she there could have was... been like looking for somewhere else to be cuz she didn't like being where she was that makes perfect sense yeah And there were a couple connections to the Biltmore that some people made. But again, Mm -hmm. a lot of these connections are people like, you know, they're finding out information and they're trying really hard to connect the pieces. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, Hanson has all of these these connections around town. So he has a connection to the Biltmore. There's also like some other men that were friends and boyfriends of her girlfriends that also were involved with the Biltmore somehow, whether they were staying there or something. I don't know. But there's, Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, Mark Hansen died in 1949, so this was two years after Elizabeth's death. He was shot by a woman named Lola Titus, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Beverly Alice Bennett. She was a 25-year-old taxi dancer. The bullet pierced his lung, and when asked why she did it, Lola said, I made up my mind that he was either going to love me, marry me, or take care of me, or I was going to kill him. So He picked kill. That's yeah. the one he picked. That's what he picked. What is a taxi dancer? I don't know. I didn't look it up. I was hoping you knew. I just, I wanted to keep I in my don't. head what I thought it was. Would it, <laughs> please tell us that, please. Well, it's clearly somebody that like asked the taxi driver to throw on the radio and they're just dancing in the back seat. That's like clearly what it is. It's like a backseat driver, but it's a taxi dancer, you know? <laughs> I'm shimmying. Love, you can't see. Yeah, you're shimmying so much. I love that that's... What you think it is, I think it's closer to a mobile go-go dancer in some way. I think she was probably paid to do that. So, (laughs) But I wish I had my iPad right now because I would Google it, but I can't. (laughs) Well, even mobile mobile Mm go-go dancer sounds Mm -hmm. to me like the same thing as a backseat dancer. It's not somebody that's like, I'm your customer and we're dancing. It's someone that's yeah. like, I'm going to charge people that come into this taxi for my services. <laughs> ah, I got, oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe it's just right. to dance. Yeah. You know, I like, like a taxi thought. stripper. I don't know. <laughs> Look it up. Tell us what a taxi dancer is. Yeah. Facebook group. You did so good with queening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> Sorry, continue. I just, that stuck out. I wanted to know what it was. So to wrap up Hanson, which Mm -hmm. I will bring him back later to my next subject, but to wrap Mm -hmm. him up as to really why the police suspected him. Right. Hanson was also linked to these three other suspects, each of whom were medical doctors. There was Dr. Patrick S. O'Reilly, Dr. M. M. Schwartz, and Dr. Arthur McGinnis Fought. And... This guy, Buzz Williams, he's a retired detective with the Long Beach Police Department. He wrote an article for the LBPD newsletter, The Rap Sheet, in 2000. Um, Rap Sheet. Yeah, and he wrote it on Elizabeth Short's murder. Uh, Williams' father was a man named Richard F. Williams, and his friend, Con Keller, were both members of the Los Angeles Gangster Squad, who were the group that um, investigated this case. 
uh, the black. I love how back then you could just be the gangster squad. I know that's what they called them. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't need like a super official name. You were just the gangster squad. (laughs) The gangster squad. Yeah. (laughs) So Keller believed that Mark Hansen was the killer. Um, So all of this again is coming from Buzz Williams article. Okay. Um, So he said that Keller, his dad's friend, believed that Hansen was the killer and Hansen was, he thought Hansen was Swedish and that he had spent some time at Sweden's medical surgery school, which would explain the precise dissection of Short's body. But just so you all know, Hansen was born in Denmark, not Sweden, and we can't find any factual evidence of him attending a school like this and everything from when he moved from Denmark to America is just him trying to have a business. It has nothing to do with the medical field. So I don't know. Check that box. Not a doctor. Yeah. Keller also said that Hansen had elaborate parties at his Hollywood boarding house and members of the Los Angeles Police Department, along with Chief of Detectives Thad Brown and his brother Phineas Brown, attended and later aided in Hansen's cover-up. Williams mentioned that Hansen owned a Ford Lincoln Mercury car lot on Hollywood Boulevard, and his LAPD friends were later coincidentally driving around town in brand new Lincoln cars. Oh. Yeah, so there were definitely, there was some suspicion within the LAPD that there was a little bit of a cover-up happening. So I guess part of that gangster squad was just not really believing each other. Like I said, there are some theories of Mm -hmm. police corruption that are more believable than others. Like, this has a lot of ties. Some of them are just like, yeah, there were dirty cops. That's it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, okay. So that's the main tie-in as to why they believed in Hansen. And now okay. I go to the next subject. A lot of that. So Hansen was suspected right away. He was within. Yeah, because like, of right the after book. the murder. Exactly. So now we move on to a year later. Um, but I will do a quick summary of this story and then I will expand it a little bit. So in 1949, which is two years later, the gangster squad arrested Leslie Dillon after he sent a letter under the pseudonym Jack Sand to the LAPD's chief police psychiatrist, Dr. Joseph Paul DeRiver. Dillon suggested that an acquaintance named Jeff Connors may have killed Short as revenge after she threatened to reveal an affair not considered proper by the average person. DeRivers believed that Connors has nothing uh, was nothing more than a projection of Dylan's imagination, too. Oh, man. So that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so Leslie Dillon, who has the best first name ever. Leslie! <laughs> <laughs> was a 27-year-old bellhop from Florida. Florida, you say? Florida's <gasps> nowhere near Cali. I don't Except- understand. <laughs> you would be correct, but let me explain. He wrote his first letter to Dr. Day River in 1948, over a year after the murder. He told De River that he had heard about Elizabeth Short's case from a true detective magazine where De River spoke on the case. He wanted to hear De River's theories on the case because he had an interest in sadism and sexual psych- psychopaths and wanted to write a book on those subjects. Don't we all? Yeah, I was like, can you blame him? <laughs> he sounds like us. <laughs> Anyways... DeRivers wrote back and they began a correspondence. After several back and forth, Leslie tells DeRivers that he now believes Jeff Connors could have been the killer. 
Jeff Connors was a friend of Leslie's from L.A. So Leslie lived in L.A. before moving to Florida. Um, He lived there during the killings. I have been trying to find more exact information, but I really couldn't find too much. So I'm sure that it's out there. Just what I was getting, it was not. He said Jeff knew Elizabeth and she knew he was having an affair on his then wife. So a possible motive could have been that Elizabeth threatened to tell his wife. So he chopped her in half? I know. It's just there's all these people just like, she knew something, so they chopped her up. (laughs) Very exquisitely. (laughs) Like, Yeah, you know, that's how you just get rid of somebody. Mm -hmm. (sighs) So, um, yeah, anyway. Dr. Rivers, who had started to suspect Leslie of being the killer because of his one-time past career as a mortician's assistant and his knowledge of some unknown-to-the-public pieces of the case. He basically, DeRivers, was coming to the conclusion that Jeff Connors was Leslie's alter ego. Interesting. So, yeah, so during some of those correspondence, uh, they would talk about medical proceedings, and Leslie just, he had some thoughts on it, he knew a little bit about it, and it just all came from him being this mortician's assistant at one point in his life. But he mostly worked as a bellhop, and that's, that's really it, so... I don't know. Oh, <laughs> also Leslie. this case and also this case had been around for a little while too. So he's also getting a, probably a lot of information from other newspaper sources. I don't know yeah, how much there was, was out there yet. There was a lot out there. I mean, all of it was out there. That this was mm-hmm. super well publicized. Like the press was all over it. So Leslie knew the river suspected him and Leslie would tell him that he's just trying to fit all the pieces together so his theory works, but he's um yeah, that De Rivers was trying to fit those pieces together to make it seem like Leslie was the mm-hmm. real killer. And he was like, you're just trying too hard. Jeff is real, I swear. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jeff. But like a true sci- like psychiatrist, he was just like, no, I will crack this case. It's much more interesting than that. <laughs> Won't we all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so De Rivers convinced Leslie to meet him in person Does it? to discuss the case more, and they met in Las Vegas. He had given Leslie a couple different locations that they could meet. One was Los Angeles, but he didn't feel that comfortable going there. So the other one was uh, Las Vegas, which, like, I'd be like, yeah, I'd rather go to Las Vegas. Let's do it. Yeah, (laughs) same. This is where I get a little bit confused with some of it because this is where a lot of the pieces, you know, I read one article, and it didn't have enough information, and then I went to another article, and it had way too much information and then I went to somewhere else and it had completely different information so I tried like red herrings a lot of like this looks like it's involved but it's not it's totally separate exactly so I think that they met in Las Vegas to speak privately but also to form a plan to find Jeff even though DeRivers expected that there wouldn't be a Jeff to find and that they would just arrest Leslie And, you know, after some conversation, they would get him to kind of confess or fall apart somewhere. I am Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff is me. Yes. I wish that had happened. That sounds great. I know. So DeRivers and a undercover LAPD cop went to Las Vegas and they recorded a lot of this conversation, so some of this you could find. Great. But um, after a couple of days in Las Vegas, they drove back to Cali to find Jeff, but they couldn't find him, so they ended up arresting Leslie. Um, here they have some conversations, but again, I didn't. I ended up not putting them in because 
after reading the conversations, again, I don't think that they help the story at all. I think to me, they just prove that he's not the suspect. Like you can right. just see them trying to feed it, feed him to say certain things. Like one of yeah, the things. Yeah, you were telling me about this. Like they, it was just like, oh, I think maybe this is the thing that happened. Well, yeah, because they were like, what happened to, what do you think happened to the pubic hair? And he was like, well, they probably, you know, plucked them all off or shaved them and flushed it down the toilet. And then they asked, what, did, what happened to her rose tattoo? And they were like, ah, she flushed it down the toilet. And for some reason they were like, well, he obviously did it when, no, like the, wasn't the tattoo found in her vagina? Do you know that? Is that something that I found? <laughs> so see well, what the, I mean? The coroner doesn't say that. Okay. <laughs> so somebody, again, Jose. So the coroner doesn't report any tattoos or anything like that. Okay. So somebody mentions like a tattoo being cut out of her body and placed somewhere else. Well, there was nothing in her vagina, her okay. normal vagina. So see, there's just like a bunch of things just being said then within their conversation, which is why I just left it out because I feel I, like they I were trying you. to get well, him also to Also, that's things. witness leading. Anytime they did that, not to harp on the West, West Memphis 3, but they did mm -hmm. that with them too, where they asked someone like, hey, what do you think happened? Yeah. And then the, just the fact that they answer the question, which you're just answering a question a police officer asked you. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, you did it. You answered it. You had an answer. No, you asked me what I think, and I told you what I think. And this guy might have had some nuts theories. Rose tattoo, though, I didn't read that anywhere else. That's very interesting. Okay. I mean, she did have large pieces of skin peeled off. Okay, so, so yeah, so it, one of them they thought was a rose tattoo. I don't know. That's possible. There was nothing in her normal vagina, though, because that would have been, like, it was too small. <laughs> it was not too small. Okay, sorry. But it also <laughs> wasn't, like, I hate saying this. But it wasn't like roughed up down there because right. if it was, they would say, oh, well, then she had been raped. But mm -hmm. they said there was no evidence that she had been raped. Okay. So that leads me to believe that it wasn't, things weren't too bad down there. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so again, Leslie was arrested. Mm -hmm. While in prison, he, <laughs> this is great. He flew a postcard out of his window asking for help. That's delightful. <laughs> and it actually landed like outside in an area that a pedestrian could grab. And he was basically, he wrote on the postcard that he was wrongfully held for the Black Dahlia murder and he oh, wanted shit. his lawyer. He had his lawyer's name and phone number on there. Like, you need to call this person. I need help oh to get God. out of here. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, he was like, nobody knows I'm here. Like, I'm from Florida. Like, he just like flew on a paper me. airplane and was like, help me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's and it great. worked. Wow. So while in jail, guess who they found? Tell Jeff me. Jeff Connors. <gasps> plot twist. I thought there was plot no Jeff. Twist. Yeah. <laughs> he was actually named Arthur Lane. Uh, they, he went by Artie. And so not Jeff. I, not Jeff. <laughs> and again, I tried really hard, everybody, to find out why he had a different name, why Leslie knew him by a different name, if he knew he was Artie. Like how the police even figured this out, I have no idea, but they did. <laughs> wow. And he did have an alibi for his whereabouts uh, during the murders. And his ex wife, um, who at the time was his wife, but is now his ex wife, um, and his work, his place of work, corroborated his story. Corroborated. Corroborated. <laughs> it's a terrible word to say. See? <laughs> Uh, so Artie and Leslie did both get, so now they're both arrested, but they both got let go for lack of evidence. They they just couldn't hold enough on them. And also they kind of arrested them. It wasn't a good 
arrest. It was very illegal how they did it. So yeah, there was <laughs> they really enough. couldn't hold them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So that's really it other than a couple of these weird pieces. So um, there's this piece of information that comes from that retired L, um, Long Beach police department officer, Buzz Williams, mm-hmm. um, whose father worked on that on this case. He alleges that Leslie and Jeff were primary suspects with Hanson. They believed Leslie and Jeff to be Hanson's associates who schemed to rob hotels. One of them would get a job as a bellhop, learn the ins and outs, then quit, and a few weeks later, they would rob the place of money and jewels. And allegedly, Elizabeth was aware of this. So, Mm -hmm. um, and Buzz Williams, so that could have been, you know why they may have killed her. Mm -hmm. Um, Buzz Williams states that his father believed Leslie wasn't the actual killer, but that he was at least there for it. That was probably Hanson. He was just around. And same with Jeff. The other, one reason why I think they connect that story or believe that story is because after Leslie and Jeff had been arrested and then let go, Leslie, who was wrongfully arrested, it was not done well he tried Mm -hmm. to sue the lapd department well yeah for a hundred thousand dollars and he probably would have won but they were they actually had to drop the case well leslie had to drop the case because they found out that he was a um wanted criminal for a santa monica um robbery at a hotel where he was a bellhop and worked there so he had done this specific job yeah Um, And then another interesting fact to tie this all up is that while Leslie was meeting with uh, DeRivers in Las Vegas, he was asked where he thought the killing would have happened. Leslie says that it could have happened in a nearby motel. And guess what? Close to where Beth's body was left was the Astor Motel. All the rooms were checked and cleared except one where they found evidence of a bloody mess. Blood was all over the walls, bedding, floor, and tiles. But for some reason, the forensic people just didn't save any of the blood, so we'll never we'll never find out whose blood it actually was. That kills me. They're like, this is fine. Clean it up. Bye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and then just to be clear, because I was like, there was, they walked in a room and there was just blood everywhere. Like, what do they mean? <laughs> but realizing that this is two years later when they go to look at this room, it's all cleared yeah. up. So it's just stuff that they found. So I think that they, forensic said that they, it looked like there was blood under the tiles, but they just didn't keep that blood to test later huh. when they could. I wonder what that was all about. That's crazy. So I looked more into this and... Mm-hmm. I only found one other mention of that specific like bloodbath of a room and it came from the same source that I was reading it from. Um, And then the only other place that I found, again, any mention of this hotel and why they think like maybe what they found when they looked in there. Yeah. Um, This place said that it wasn't quite the bloodbath that, other people said that it was just there was some menstruation blood on the sheets and a little bit on that tile. Like it wasn't like a bloodbath <sighs> in the room. It wasn't all over. So I don't know. I believe that a little bit more because like yeah. if there if it was as crazy as they said it was, like don't you think the police would have been notified? That that'd be a thing. We would yeah. <laughs> Forty seven. So. And if it wasn't linked to her, they would want to know whose blood that was. <laughs> yeah, and even if somebody was in there, like, cleaning it up in the own, like, yeah. somebody would have seen a bunch of cleaning supplies going somewhere yeah. or missing Absolutely. or, 
I don't know. It just seemed really crazy that there was like a bloodbath that happened. Tile grout stains too, man. That would have been ruined. Yeah, exactly. And probably, I'm sure it was carpet in there, you know. That's, yeah, that's, it sounds heavily exaggerated, but I read that in a few places too. So that, okay, makes sense to add. Yeah, so that's really it. Um, I tried really hard to to get better um, evidence as to how these people connected. But to me, it really yeah. just sounded like some people were really trying to connect these stories and they yeah. were just falling short, which is why none of them held up. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's like one other guy that's involved in that, and I have a little bit on him. You touched on him. His name is Dr. Patrick S. O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly was a physician with a pretty checkered past at the time. He performed abortions, like they all do, which were illegal back then, and he was brought in for questioning when one such shady operation led to sepsis and death for his patient. The woman died, and O'Reilly fared failed to report it. He said he thought that a death death certificate was sufficient. Hmm. Great. He's like, I don't need to report it. It's all, I wrote on her death certificate. That's what happened. Sorry, wrong. Dr. O'Reilly was also arrested a second time for the brutal and sadistic beating of his secretary in a motel room. And this guy was friends with Mark Hansen, which this is, you, you read this too, like this is documented in a bunch of places. And he was seen by many witnesses attending parties at Hanson's house and his nightclub and was rumored to have had an affair with Elizabeth, though no one can prove or com- can confirm the suspicion. O'Reilly also had to have his right pectoral muscle removed at one point, which matched the mutilations found on Elizabeth's corpse. It was later discovered that in one point in his life, Dr. O'Reilly was also married to the daughter of a member of the Los Angeles Police Department. So this lends itself to the cops covered it up theory Mm -hmm. because he would have connections to the LAPD. The case against Dr. O'Reilly is rather flimsy to me. Yes, this man had a penchant for violence, but it leans heavily on the maybe she was pregnant line of thinking, which we know to be completely untrue. Or um, looks like he could just, like you said, be manipulated around to fit this case. Yeah. Because he was like a violent guy they didn't like anyway. They're like, oh, maybe we can just put this on him anyway. And while he's certainly a total shitbag, I don't think he had anything to do with this. And neither do most authorities, though he does remain on the list of official, the small list of official suspects to this day. Okay. So they took him seriously. I think they took most doctors seriously because they were like, who, this has to be a doctor. Um, Okay. So then we'll move on to to my big giant story. Yay. (laughs) There is, however, one suspect to me and a lot of other people who stands out above the rest. One who has several detectives considering the case to be solved. Though since it was done after his death, we'll never get the satisfaction of him meeting justice or the confirmed explanation literally everyone in the world wants. But we do have the next best thing. This version of Elizabeth's death is the most detailed and makes as much sense as it possibly can. It came to light in the early 2000s when the suspect's son, a respected detective, came forward with a whole lot of information. Boxes and boxes of it. So I'm going to finish with the version of events that I believe led to Elizabeth's being killed by a surrealist, sadistic, sex-obsessed, incest-dabbling polygamous surgeon named George Hodel. Let's hang, do it. Hang Sorry. on to your hats because his story is batshit crazy. Let's do it. Yes. And not only is it strange, but it contains an explanation for almost everything. It, you even read a piece that, that I don't even have, which we'll go into in the end. Okay. Like it sews up that part too. I love if it. If I remember it. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I will remember it, I promise. Okay. <laughs> so 
there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that we could have done a full episode just on George Hodel, and maybe we will in the future. But for now, I'll keep the background on George as brief as possible, as it's important that we understand who he was in order to understand why he likely did what he did. George Hodel Sr., George Hill Hodel Sr., Jr., sorry, his father was senior. That's a typo on my part. Was born on October 10th, 1907 in Los Angeles, California. George was well-educated and extremely intelligent. He was also um, reportedly a musical prodigy, like he was a piano prodigy. Hmm, Just a fact. His IQ was 186. Smart guy. That is well above genius level. And to put it into perspective... Both Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking have IQs around 160. Wow. So he was like, he should be studied level of smart. Hodel entered Caltech when he was just 15 years old, but was forced to leave after he impregnated his teacher. Wow. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> At that age, I, I really believe that's child abuse because a 15-year-old boy and a grown-ass woman cannot be in a consensual sexual relationship, and there is nobody out there that can change my mind. Switch the sexes. Make it a 15-year-old girl and a grown-ass man. There. Wait. Now we all understand. So Cal, <laughs> Caltech was a... College. Not a college. Oh, so wouldn't he have been 18? No, he was 15 because he was that smart. Oh, because he was so smart. Mm-hmm. And he had an affair with a teacher wherein she ended up getting pregnant. And he, like, wanted to marry her and be with her forever. And she was like, <laughs> bye, little boy. So Yeah. And instead, he got thrown out of school for it because okay. they put it on him because he was the boy. Huh. So after that, in 1928, George entered a common law marriage with a woman named Emilia, and they had a child named Duncan. In the 30s, there's no specific date on this, anywhere you look. He was legally married to a woman named, a model, in fact, named Dorothy Anthony. Now, mind you, he's still with Amelia at this point in time. This is just an additional wife. Okay. So now he has two. Nice. He and Dorothy then have a daughter named Tamar. Now remember her, she's important. Hodel then enrolled at Berkeley, majoring in pre-med. After he got that degree, he immediately followed his time at Berkeley with um, getting his medical degree from the University of Southern California in June of 1936. Now, this is a point in time wherein he would have learned how to perform the surgery that that would bisect a person. Okay. That was routinely taught in medical school in the 1930s. I don't know if they still teach it. It's pretty radical. You might have to go into a specialty for it. I tried to talk to doctors. They're kind of busy right now. so <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little busy. So I didn't really push that. Um, but anyway, he did, he did, he would have learned about it. Um, so that's when he received his medical license. By 1940, George had his own medical practice specializing in the treatment of venereal disease and also super secret underground abortions. So if you were a doctor at that time and you wanted to make some money, you were performing super secret abortions. The Hodels were becoming quite wealthy and were considered to be members of the Los Angeles social elite. George also became extremely involved in the surrealist art movement and sadomasochism, which Leslie so thoughtfully explained to us in our John Robinson episode. I know way too much about it. You know all the things. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm not going to try to explain the entire surrealist movement because we truly don't have time for all the research that I could have done on it. And also my kids have to like eat and go to school. So I'm going to give you the Webster style definition of it and then we will move on. Cool. Surrealism was a cultural movement which developed in Europe in the aftermath of World War I and was largely influenced by Dada. 
The movement is best known for its visual artworks and writings and the juxtaposition of uncommon imagery. Artists painted unnerving, illogical scenes, sometimes with photographic precision, creating strange creatures from everyday objects and developing painting techniques that allowed the unconscious to express itself. They were very interested in Freud. They were very into your unconscious mind and what its desires are. Its aim was, according to leader Andre Brayton, to resolve the previously contradictory conditions of dream and reality into an absolute reality, a super reality, or surreality. Hmm. So basically, surrealists believed in a free and unshackled mind and an authentic human experience. They believed in exploring anything that was in your subconscious and any kind of thoughts, dark or not, that you might have were worth exploration. Um, Salvador Dali would be our most famous, I guess, surrealist, or not even most famous, just the most like commonly known. Right. So if you guys can conjure up a Dali painting in your mind, that's what it is. I'll, I'll put a bunch of pictures on our Facebook and Instagram and all over that stuff. Uh, so George became friends with surrealist painter and photographer Man Ray, and the two were given to partying, drinking, and womanizing. Married to two women, still out womanizing. He's a cool guy. At the same time, George also married, not legally, but apparently still married, a woman named Dorothy Harvey. But two Dorothys were too many, so he decided she would just be known as Torero. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> I have it two Dorothys, so you are Torero. It gets so confusing. Great. I know. No one knows if that is a choice that she liked, but she didn't have a say in the matter, so Torero it is. Maybe she did. Maybe she was like, he was like, I, you know, there's too many Dorothys. She's like, well, I always wanted to change my name to Torero. Maybe she did. Yeah. But everything I read said he made her be called that. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's super cool that way. Oh, and like I said, he's accumulating wives. This is, there's no divorces in here. This is like a sister wives situation. I wonder if it's like he's like that slave master. Yeah. Well, there's, there's um, elements of that in there for sure because he was into that stuff. Yeah. I, I, it's starting, that's starting to kind of piece together a little bit. So in 1945, George purchased the Soudan House on Franklin Avenue in Los Angeles. And this house is big, it's beautiful, and it's also terrifying. Mm. It's been in a ton of movies. It um, was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son. It's a big deal, the house. And it was probably a crazy ton of money. So underground high-end abortions, people are paying a, a shit ton of money for them, basically. Um, so there was plenty of room for all of George's wives and children. He and Torero had three, which brings the kid total to five under his roof. Um, under this roof, George took a turn. He was making a fortune as an underground abortionist, which I just said, and that gave him more than enough blackmail information on people from every powerful institution in town. George was throwing lavish parties where group sex was both common and encouraged, George had many lovers, all of them younger, beautiful Hollywood party girls. See where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. And George always encouraged his wives to participate in these acts at these parties. He was like, get in there, have sex with a lot of people. And then when they were old enough, George encouraged his daughter's participation as well. Mm. Young Tamar, and sometimes they call her Tamar, sometimes they call her Tamar. And that's her own brother pronounces her name differently at several points in time, so <laughs> nobody knows. She would be raped by her father and his friends repeatedly beginning at the age of 15. Jesus. This would result in two pregnancies by George himself, one that he terminated and the other that was carried to term. 
When Tamar realized she was pregnant for the second time, she ran away from home and reported George to the police. And this resulted in a trial and everything. But George was able to spin the situation so that it appeared that Tamar was mentally ill and imagined this. Uh. And he was acquitted. So, see, this is where I think that he he sounds very much like what Ed, Edward Robinson. John Edward Robinson. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's a very charming. He can talk his way out of situations. Yep. It's very much like a like the slave master kind of mentality, that Gorian lifestyle. Yep. And if they're having these like sex parties and, you know, they're his women, but then when they go to these parties, they can exchange, but then they take them back. Yep. Sometimes they switch. I don't know if he did any of that, but like this sounds very much like that. And these women just kind of, they were somewhat, I mean, definitely not his daughter, but it seemed like the wives were okay with what was happening. <laughs> a little bit. I don't know what, we don't go yeah, too much into the, their story. I, mean, I, I don't have anything beyond like his son Steve's accounts and they are extensive okay the root of all evil the podcast that he produced which is phenomenal so good but it's extremely extensive and to go into all of that would take me forever and also he's published three books about this so okay I really didn't try to go too far because we would just be here forever um yeah well that's my theory (laughs) they they went on they went along with it Mm-hmm. And but his daughter, like Tamar's accounts are like she was held down and raped. She was not in a good. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was not a good situation for her. After her father was acquitted, Tamar would leave home, and she's pregnant at this time. She leaves home pregnant. She runs away. I think she's like. I mean, I know she's absolutely afraid he's gonna try make her abort this baby because he did it with the first one. So she left home. Um, and after this, she would. Also report remembering a beautiful dark-haired girl that would come by the house sometimes to model for her father and his photographer friend. Man Ray had taken photos of George and of the whole Hodel family in their Franklin Avenue home, but also he used it as a backdrop to photograph other models, and some of those photos are suspected to have been Elizabeth Short. Okay. Some of the ones they found were confirmed to not be her, Mm -hmm. like just one of the major ones, but there are apparently others that they still suspect could have been her. Plus, like, he didn't have all of the pictures. Some could be somewhere else and Tamar went on to I don't know if I have this in my notes but it's worth mentioning she went on to have her baby and her baby she gave her away to a a cleaning woman Hmm. she was like would you be interested in taking my baby take this baby because she like couldn't raise the baby and um when her her daughter whose name was Fauna was 15 she was able to like connect the dots and um, later DNA tests revealed that her father was indeed also her maternal grandfather. Okay. So there is medical evidence connecting the the rape allegations and stuff. Like that 100% happened and 100% resulted in a child. Wow. Okay. Anywho, George Hodel idolized artists. His house was filled with artwork. He collected it, he studied it, and he lived what he thought to be an artist's lifestyle. But he was never cre- able to create something great himself. Not yet anyway. George wasn't a painter, he wasn't a writer, he didn't draw or take photographs, but he was an excellent surgeon, and he knew quite a bit about the human body. And that was kind of like art, Mm -hmm. wasn't it? At least he believed that it was, or that it could be. So back to our title sequence, Exquisite Corpse. For those of you who don't know, it is actually a game. A game most frequently played by artists, but it's also a parlor game that was more popular in Victorian times. These, they call their end pieces cadavers. were collaborations between artists and 
some of them are extremely valuable. Like a lot of very famous, like well-respected surrealist artists would collaborate on these paintings and drawings together. I mean, you, if they're, they're still auctioned off today. If you Google it, you can see like pages and pages and pages of them. Mm-hmm. One of the most famous examples was by Andre Breton, Man Ray, Max Maurice, and Yves Tanguy. I'm sorry if I mispronounced any of those. Um, it features the image of a woman literally being sawed in half. Like there's a saw through the center of her body and features the face is like misrearranged and all the features are in like different places and the head is a weird shape, but it features an enormous grinning mouth. Okay. Um, and Man Ray is also famous for a photograph called the Minotaur, which is of a dismembered woman's torso. It's just the torso. Can't even see the head. The arms are stretched over the head, bent at the elbow, mimicking the shape of a bull's head. So like this, you know how you look yeah, like a bull yeah, head yeah. like that? So that's why it's called the Minotaur. Um, the Minotaur, quote, ruiner of maidens, as he is called, is featured in a lot of surrealist artwork. And Elizabeth's top half was posed exactly like this painting. Hmm. Coincidence? Okay. Probably not. There are a lot of additional surrealist works of art that look eerily like the body of Elizabeth Short. But I'll spare you the art lecture and just post the pictures on social media. Um, but I could give you like six examples of of works of art that look exactly like her body. Mm-hmm. Um, so George Hodel was also extremely familiar with all of these. He would have seen them all. Uh, by 1947, George Hodel was uh, the man to come to if you were an elite woman in trouble. He knew everybody's secrets, and you would not want to piss him off. His son, Steve Hodel, told police after his father's death in 1999 that Elizabeth Short was murdered and dissected in the basement of their home on Franklin Avenue. They had just done some restoration work on the home, and there were cement sacks left lying around. This is what George used to transport her body. The sacks found at the scene of the crime were later identified to be the exact same kind as the ones used in the Hodel's home. George had a surgical clinic set up in his basement with an operating table. He would have had the tools, the know-how, and the ability to clean up. Steve Hodel said that he remembers Elizabeth's scream but he never saw her body. Oh, wow. So he remember he remembers an instance where there was just screaming coming from the basement. Hmm. Yeah. There's another one small telltale sign to report. Remember how I've said several times that there was cross hatching located near her pubic area? Yeah. Like, that looks like a grid. This is like an artist's mark. It's a, it's a tool that they use to shade. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a mark that Man Ray used a lot. In one very famous photo to, like, cross out someone's face. He used the exact same cross-hatching. So a lot of people think that this is a signature and an homage. Okay. Because they're very deliberate. They don't look just look like scratches. They're, like, you can see it, like, put together. Um, And after Elizabeth's murder, George was on the short list of suspects. The suspicious death of his secretary via an overdose at George's in-home office is what elevated him from one of the suspects to the prime suspect. Steve Hodel claims that he knows with complete certainty that George forced his secretary, Ruth, to overdose because she knew too much. So she was in office when this happened, and so he thinks that, like, she just was cracking under the pressure and forced the medication on her, and she died. Um, and she, she started to ask questions, so she had to go. So police decided to install electronic recording devices in the Hodel home, and the tapes provide some pretty incriminating evidence. Most famously, George saying, and this isn't such old-timey, fun, detective-type lingo. Suppose and I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they might have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Ooh. This is on a tape. 
Right. It's still in evidence in Los Angeles. <laughs> like, it's there. <laughs> and this is essentially a confession, right? Yeah. Why would you say that if you were innocent? If you were innocent, you would be like, what if I did? You'd be like, I did not. Right. George w- would have been arrested and tried for this case if he hadn't fled to the Philippines the second a warrant for his arrest was issued. And he stayed there until his eventual death. You see, George knew everyone. George held everyone's secrets. And someone probably told George exactly when it was time to slip away. Because if they hadn't, well, life wouldn't have been too peachy for them after George had his say. Yeah. So I think he was kind of like, okay, you got me, but you, you got to let me run. Wild. Yeah, totally wild. Now, George O'Dell has been linked to several other famous murders of the time, such as the Green Twig murder, the Chicago lipstick killings, which we will totally cover. They're very interesting. Uh, and this rabbit hole I fell down with those crimes is intense. And even the Zodiac murders, which that's nuts. He wasn't the Zodiac, but people like to connect everything. After George's death in 1999, his son Steve set out to make a case against his father. He collected a staggering amount of evidence, but the LAPD refused to put a dead man on trial. Privately, however, the LAPD considers this case the LAPD considers this case to be solved. And here are some quotes from um, LAPD detectives. The chief detective, Thad Brown, did you mention this guy? I did. Mm-hmm. Right. He said, quote, the Black Dahlia case was solved. He was a doctor who lived on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood, end quote. Okay. LAP- yeah. He was one of the people that went to Hanson's parties. There you go. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> LAPD chief of police, William H. Parker, said, quote, we identified the Black Dahlia suspect. He was a doctor, end quote. Which doesn't give you much, but whatever. An LASD underground, I think that's a typo. I think it's supposed to be PD. Underground Sheriff James Downey, under sheriff, sorry, I don't even know what position that is. His name's James Downey, said, the Black Dahlia case was solved, but it will never come out. It was a doctor they all knew in Hollywood involved in abortions. DA Lieutenant Frank Jemison said, we know who the Black Dahlia killer was. He was a doctor, but we didn't have enough to put him away. Well, all right, we got it. Yeah. Holly figured it out. Done. So there's also an extremely new update on George Hodel's involvement in this case. Okay. Which I like. In July of 2018, Sandy Nichols of Indianapolis, Indiana, was going through her recently deceased mother's personal effects when she discovered an envelope titled Dying Declaration Letter, which, Jesus Christ, if you found that, wouldn't you be like, oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) And who writes that? Written by her grandfather, W. Glenn Martin, on October 26th, 1949. The handwritten envelope read, In case of Margaret Ellen or Glenna Jean's death, and it was initialed WGM. The letter was written out of fear that one or both of his teenage daughters might be killed. The three-page letter identified W. Glenn Martin as a paid Los Angeles Police Department informant working for a Sergeant McCauley... Sergeant McCauley is confirmed as working for the LAPD International Affairs Division. He described his activities as working undercover for LAPD detectives to help them identify and arrest corrupt police officers. In his words, quote, it was to try and see if other officers could be inveigled into this crime, end quote. The Martin letter goes on to name G.H., in 17 separate occasions, identifying him as a personal acquaintance of Martin's as well as of Sergeant McCauley's and named him as the killer of both Elizabeth Black Dahlia Short and of a second woman, Louise Springer, who is the victim in the Green Twig murder. Uh, I thought about going into this murder, but the episode can't handle it just too much. Uh, Martin's letter claimed that both he and G.H., 
personally knew Louise Springer and that he believed G.H. also killed her. LAPD at the time was actively investigating the Louise Springer and Black Dahlia murders and publicly identified them as probably connected. Springer was garroted. A garrot is like you have two sticks with uh, like a length of string or piano wire or something tied between them and then you use it to strangle somebody. Mm-hmm. So it's like a tool. That's how she was killed. Fun facts with Holly. <laughs> Woo! Garot, your word of the day. <laughs> um, the letter included the fact that LAPD, after being informed that GH knew Louise Springer, that GH was taken in and grilled about the Springer murder. The Martin letter made it clear that GH was known and protected by law enforcement officers and that they let him go. Martin's instructions were that his letter was to be opened only in the case of harm coming to either of his daughters. No harm came to either of them, so the letter letter remained unopened and unreported and in the family's possession for 70 years until it was discovered and read by Martin's granddaughter. Wow. Nuts, right? So, this is so cool. (laughs) Yeah, right? George Hodel saw... Can you imagine finding that, by the way? No. Being like, holy crap, I found, like, confirmation of... A solution to the most infamous crime in America. Yeah. Nothing cool like that ever happens to me. (laughs) Me neither. George Hodel saw Elizabeth Short's murder as his ultimate art installation. A literal exquisite corpse. He had built upon other masterpieces to create his own. All the photos of his masterpiece in newspapers were most likely more than satisfactory to George. So he probably loved the press it got. That was the idea. He could have easily arranged the body somewhere where it wouldn't have been found for days or where the press couldn't get to it, but he didn't. He left it extremely accessible, something a genius, which he was, would never just accidentally do. He blatantly committed a crime he knew he would get away with. Elizabeth did not have a lot of family in the area, as is evident by the fact that they had to ship in her mother under a ruse to get her to identify her body. She had a lot of acquaintances, as you said, but no, like, super close best friends. Mm -hmm. And she moved around a lot. So no one would be looking for her. George Hodel had committed the perfect crime. It was a work of art. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's what I have on on George Hodel. Now you said you heard that he that you read in in Steve Hodel's yeah ton of information that he actually has proof that he wrote that like magazine letter too. Yeah, he brings up, well, I guess maybe it's like theorized, but I guess there were some letters that had been written back and forth with the police. So what you just said now kind of confirms my thought. He probably, so I would say George Herdell definitely wanted people to see his work and keep talking about it. Yeah, I don't think he wanted to be identified, but he wanted the work to be out there. Yeah, and... So it seemed like there were some correspondence to the police station, mm-hmm. the first one being that like ransomy type looking letter. And there was a second one that did get sent that looked like that as well. And that was supposed to be like a meetup, oh. like I'll meet you here. But I think there were letters written in between that, that he, the killer basically was saying we can meet because I'll have some sort of deal. Like I'm going to give you this information and I'm not going to maybe go to life or be killed or whatever. So because I did read that George's handwriting was connected to like information regarding the Black Dahlia murders. Yeah. So I think maybe sometimes he wrote letters to them and other times he made it look like real creepy looking. Interesting. And um, so the police 
you know, went to go meet him at this spot and he never showed up. And there was another, I think that's when the last of the letters came again, that looked that creepy ransomy type saying like, I, you know, realized, um, you guys weren't going to give me any deal. So Mm -hmm. I'm not meeting you. And then around that same time is when he had left for the Philippines. Interesting. And disappeared. Now there is Mm -hmm. also, he lived in the Philippines from what I read in a lot of places that whole time. There are also accounts that say he came back to the United States a handful of times. There are accounts that say he lived for a time in Hawaii wherein he married yet another woman. Mm. But all of this was done like undercover. Like he he wasn't a known entity and he spent most of his time in another country until the time of his death. Um, his His son, oh man. Steve like did so much good detective work. He did legitimate really good detective work and i really believe and the most of the los angeles police department believes that his theory about his father killing elizabeth short is real but then he went off the rails (laughs) and was like well he's also every other serial killer you can't solve and that's maybe he did commit the green twig murder because the cops had had suspected that a while maybe one of us can do that as a campfire story okay um and we'll we'll kind of touch into that then but um I don't think he's the Zodiac. (laughs) Yeah. That's so many killings, and that would put him in so many different places. Mm -hmm. But you know what? You guys can read into it what you will. Maybe some of you will find some new information on these things. Maybe you will find this to be uh, an avenue worth doing your own exploration on. Let us know whatever you find. Um, There's just only so much information you can fit into. I've said this a lot of times, that you can fit into a podcast without going into like seven hours. (laughs) Well, and I suspect that we'll we'll do the Zodiac Killer at some point. Yeah, definitely so, we'll do Zodiac. Yeah, so we can look into that, and if we feel like it fits, we can put it in. If not, yeah, you know, absolutely. Then it didn't. Then it didn't fit, guys. Yeah, get over it. <laughs> but that was like a wild ride of research for us this week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> I read. I I think in all, I read a whole book on this. Yes, without meaning to. So I'm like, oh my God. And it was just about these two people. I read so much about surrealist artwork. I could give a whole separate lecture on surrealists and why their art is why this happened. Well, maybe we'll start a new podcast. (laughs) I don't think I'm qualified to do that, but I on this one specific topic, I definitely could go off for a while. (laughs) But we're very qualified to talk about true crime cases. Listen. We can read just like everybody. Hold on. I need to pour more wine. I'll be right back. (laughs) I have some more thoughts. (laughs) Oh, I didn't have any wine this whole time. I had tea. I actually had a dirty martini. (gasps) Best. A dirty goose. My favorite. Ooh, best martini. With a um, fresh blue cheese stuffed olive. Oh, you went all out. I did, yeah. Because I never get them at the restaurants because I always think they're really gross at the restaurants, but mm-hmm. I'll like, get them from a store. Yeah, I feel you. I don't like them in my martini because they leave like an oil slick on the top of it. Mine did not. I, th- I must have drank it fast enough. Ah, or you <laughs> ate the olive fast enough. Maybe. I still have one left because I didn't want to chew in the uh, microphone. So. <laughs> I would hate that so much. I know. <laughs> Ew. We'll take out I that sign. It. We'll take that out. <laughs> Please don't leave that in, John. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, so do you have someone you want to toast this week? Um, I did. I have to think about I it forgot. for a minute. Shoot. Everybody's awful. <laughs> they are all awful. Um, 
I, I, I guess that I want to toast Elizabeth Short this week. You can pick somebody okay. else if you if there's somebody else. Um, but I just feel bad for her because she was young. She was only 22. She clearly had not figured out her life at all. She had mm-hmm. a really shitty dad that for probably sure. confused her even more. Mm-hmm. And she just, I it just seems like she kind of, she just fell in with the wrong people. She was looking for some comfort and security and all these people that were kind of making her feel secure were just terrible people. Oh God, everybody around her was terrible. And she should have just gone back home to Massachusetts, but she yeah, was trying to make May. it. She was young. I mean, maybe in a few more years she would have, but I don't know. She wasn't even trying to be an actress. That's another thing where people are like, failed actress. But there are just, like I said in the previous episode, there are no reports of her auditioning anywhere ever. Yeah. I mean, you I have think to she tried to fail. Right. <laughs> I think she would have just got lumped in with a lot of those actresses, it seems right. like. So, and she could have said that that's what she was doing to sound interesting. She was yeah. always trying to find ways to make money because it didn't seem like she had an actual job. Like they mm-hmm. couldn't connect her with a specific career. So it could be true that she was modeling for George yeah. Hodel to make some money. Um, yeah, that sounded right to me. She was very pretty mm-hmm. and it was just like a way to yeah make some money and it was art. So she would have been into that scene at the time probably. Yeah. Um, but- I'm going to toast. We can definitely keep her because she does deserve it. But I also want to toast um, Sandy Nichols, the woman who found that insane letter. Oh, yeah. From her grandfather that was like, ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Because, like, that's, I think that that's, that's to be her. phenomenal. So, <laughs> so we'll, we will toast to our, to Sandy Nichols and Elizabeth Short. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to clink. You're going to have to clink. <gasps> that's good. That's good. So, <laughs> toast to them. And, oh, this is hard to sew up since we have so many different theories. But I would say that if we were 22-year-old, popular, idealistic party girls, in Hollywood in the 40s, who just happened to fall into the wrong crowd, we would be dead. We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. She died as she lived with a normal vagina.